electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, the Fed is now on the clock, just 21 hours and counting until Chair Powell releases his next decision on rates. How high does the Fed need to go to break the back of inflation and how much pain is this going to cause for the markets? Plus, Nike just not doing it. The sneaker giant falling after a downgrade, lingering inventory fears, troubles in China and currency headwinds all behind that call. Are Nike's troubles going to ripple through the rest of retail? And later, rolling the dice on casino stocks. Home builders get hammered again and the big bank CEOs making their way to Capitol Hill with a sobering message on the economy. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Jeff Mills, and Julie Beal will join us in just moments. And we begin with that countdown to tomorrow's latest, most important, mostest important decision on interest rates. Traders expecting Chair Powell to hike rates 75 basis points and signal they are not done yet. All the major averages posting declines of around 1% on the day, but finishing off their lows. Every S&P sector down for the day, only two Dow components finishing higher. That would be Boeing and Apple. Yields continue to climb. The two-year now at just under 4%, 3971. After the last Fed meeting, it was just under 3%. And one year ago, it was 0.21%. Think Hmm. about that. It's amazing. The dollar index also continuing its climb, closing the session near 20-year highs. And check out shares of Ford, the biggest loser in the S&P, dropping 12% after the automaker warned that inflation is driving up costs from suppliers to the tune of a billion dollars in the third quarter. Sounds like inflation may be more persistent, underscores the challenge facing the Federal Reserve today. So, Timothy... What do you expect? Uh, hold on. Am I in trouble? When, when I get <laughs> timothy I'm it's usually at home. Uh, what's going on? So going into this Fed meeting, we, we are down six and a half percent in seven days from that CPI print of last week. And what was uh, most important about the CPI print is not that inflation was getting worse, is that it left little impression that it's getting better. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've seen what's happened to the terminal rate. We've talked about it all week on, in terms of Fed funds, somewhere around 450. And, and this is a case where I, I just think markets, uh, first of all, this is, the, this is like the March Madness week of central banks. Every central bank in the world is going, and, and they seemingly all were late to the to the start of the game from the Fed. You had the Rix Bank in Sweden today go 100 basis points when people were expecting. What, is, what does it mean for our Fed? It means that our Fed is clearly changing uh, the velocity of where interest rates are going. And for people to think that this is something that we've seen before, we haven't seen interest rates this a 300 basis point move in seven months since 1982, and we're doing it from zero, folks. We're not yeah. doing it in 1982, and 1983 in Volcker, where we evoke him all the time. Rates were at 12 percent. Very, very different. And I know we're going to talk about whether things start to get broken at some point. But I mean, this is, to me, a very different environment. The velocity of change is what is amazing about this move in yield stand. What are we positioned for here? What I mean, the markets are gyrating. The yields are, are skyrocketing. Yeah. Are we positioned for 75? Are we, positioned, are we positioning potentially for 100? Well, the markets, I, I, obviously, this 6.5% move you know, lower in the last week or so is basically pricing in the fact that this is going to be the third consecutive 75 basis mm-hmm. point hike. And we like to Tim's point, we haven't seen that sort of aggressive nature of hikes in uh, you know 40 years or something like that. Now, obviously, there's a chance for a surprise. The fact that CME uh, Fed Fund tracker is still leaving open a 20% chance of a full percentage hike 
spike suggests the fact that, you know, a day from now, like if we had that, I think markets, stock market in particular, would go down precipitously, probably right through that 3,800 in the S&P 500. And then we'd be on our way back to that 3,630 in the next couple of days or so. That was the June low. One of the things that you said is really interesting, though, is that the two year, again, a year ago was uh, 21 what, tw- bips. 21 bips. OK, so think about where the U.S. dollar index was back then. Ninety five. It's yep. basically 110 right now. Crude oil, if you think about it, is actually still OK. You know, its highs in November was 85. It's at 85 right now. So a lot of those financial conditions are still very constrained. And if you want to take it back to the stock market, I know we've talked a lot about where margins are and the pressures on margins, the ability to pass through mm-hmm. to consumers, that sort of stuff. I think the stock market's in a tough spot. Now, we might see a little pressure relieved here if they don't or they're not as hawkish as people think. But the, the S&P companies um, are not out of the woods yet because we just haven't seen those cuts yet. And I think that earnings estimates are still too high. So, again, that's been my stance. I think we go through the lows at some point. We may go higher first, but we are going through those lows. This so year. I think that's an interesting sort of exercise to go through, Julie, and that is to think about where things are today, what where financial conditions are headed today. They're going to get worse. They're going to get tighter and where valuations are today. And should valuations be where they are, given what we see in the pipeline for conditions? Yeah, I think that's the critical component of understanding where we are in this market is thinking about valuations. And when I look at them relative to other historical recessions, we're still pretty high. And that's off earnings that I think still need to be cut further from here. So my concern is that we still have a long way to go in terms of both revising earnings and contracting multiples. So to me, it's, it's hard to get very enthusiastic here. Yeah, we mentioned Ford, and we know that's news from yesterday, Jeff, because it sort of underscores this notion that it's not just supply constraints that are causing costs to go higher, but there are inflationary pressures that are driving just the costs from the suppliers higher, which is why Ford is warning. And so if that's the case and you sort of extrapolate that onto more of the S&P 500, I mean, think of all the other shoes to drop potentially if that is the case. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's why I don't think the Fed has a whole lot to gain from really backing off its hawkish tone tomorrow. So I think you're going to hear very much of the same. I actually don't know how much they have to gain by being overly hawkish either. But I think giving the market what it expects is probably what's going to happen. But just to underscore the point, you know, we can argue about what is priced in relative to interest rates and the Fed, you know, is 75 priced in? Is it not? What's not priced in are recessionary level EPS growth estimates. And whether it's Ford, FedEx, you know, we're seeing companies now come out and talk about earnings in a way that I think is is more uh, consistent with reality over the next couple of quarters and, and into next year. And we mentioned multiples and valuation. I mean, you know, what has helped us through multiple cycles over the last 10 years? It's been Tina, right? There is no alternative to stocks. Well, now there is. You know, the two-year pushing 4%, even the 10-year with potential price appreciation, if we're near the top there at 3.5%, multiples are not going to save us this time. Uh, and I, I think that that's just something we all have to internalize and, and realize as we go through this period of, of earnings growth slowdown and economic growth slowdown. And the market is telling us this. You know, the, the look of leadership is very late cycle. We are now... Now 65 days off of that June low and utilities have outperformed by 8% over that period of time. So, you know, there's nothing within the market behavior, within leadership that's really telling me uh, that the worst is behind us at this point.
Yeah, it's remarkable that people are paying up for utilities because of the perceived safety in this environment. As they do, and yeah, as they do yeah. for consumer staples, and, and, and I feel a lot more comfortable in a Cargill or a Unilever or a, a Colgate Palmolive. I, I just say to, to carry on Julie and Jeff's commentary on, on multiples, uh, 16 and a half times forward on the S&P was the, the, the multiple at, you know, when rates were at zero was right. was you know, a bit higher, obviously. So what's the recessionary speak. multiple? Well, the recessionary multiple, we can go back to the recession and we can we can do that. But you know, we're we're talking about not only the the multiple, but we're talking about what's going on with earnings. And we've said this many times on the show. You haven't brought the earnings multiple back in, but right. but again, if you look at the long term average just on the forward PE for the S and P, that incorporates a world where largely rates have have been on average about two percent, and that that's that's about fifteen and a half. And that's again in a world where we keep yeah, earnings. Where they we are. discussed this in our call earlier today, there was a tweet from a guy named Mike Zaccardi. He's a good follow on the Twitter here. And he was breaking out the S&P 500 by valuation. Take the top 10 by weighting, which make up 28% of the weight of the index of 500 stocks. Okay. And their average P.E. is about 24 and a half. And then you take the other 490 and their average P.E. is somewhere under 15. So, you know, to that point where those 10 stocks are holding the key to the entire stock market. And I guess my friend Danny Moses, who comes on the show here, he's been saying, and Guy says this all the time, too. This is a reflection of this obsession with passive investing, right? Because so much capital, when it comes into the market, it's going into those handful of stocks. And they are really dictating the course of the stock market right here. And that's scary. What it means to me in the other 490, there are a lot of stocks that are priced for value that have already priced in this recessionary environment. But if you are along Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Tesla, and a few others, you are at their mercy. And I got to tell you this, Google made a new 52 low today. Microsoft made a new 52-week low today, and they don't look good. And if Apple and Amazon play catch up to the uh, downside, it could be a really difficult environment for stocks. I'm going to I'm going to play the what you do. What you do. How about it? You should why do. not? Why not pay up a premium for these stocks because they are perceived to be more defensive? If you take a look at an Apple, for instance, they've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet. They paid it. I mean, they. Yes, Dan makes a lot of good points, as he always does. But there is a, a, a perceived safety. If you're going to pay 34 times forward for Clorox, why not pay for Apple, Jeff? Yeah, I sort of agree with that. And I actually think, you know, maybe to add a little bit of positivity to this, you, you get through the next couple of weeks. And generally speaking, over the medium term, I'm not all that positive on the market. But, you know, the fourth quarter is historically the best, best quarter of the year. Sentiment is pretty depressed. I think especially in some of those growth names, if we just so happen to get sort of a light CPI print, I think people are going to be sort of surprised, to your point, about what proved safe in the fourth quarter. And I think that it could be those traditional quality growth stocks, the Microsoft, Amazons, Googles, you know, Given the valuation reset we've seen there, given, I think, this this sh- this fi- uh, shift in fear we're going to see between inflation and rates and then to growth and recession, you know, I think that those names are going to be places to hide. But to Dan's point, some of those charts look like they're breaking right now. So I think over the next month or so, they could really give it up. And then I think it's actually a big opportunity to step in. Where do you stand, Julie, on this notion of safety in the market? You know, I, we are always trying to find the highest quality businesses because we're long-term holders. We don't move around. And I think the important thing to keep in mind when you are that type of investor is you want something that has durable earnings power through a cycle, the entire cycle, even the bottom. And so those are the types of businesses that we're looking at. And I think you have to be very choosy, right? To me, Google and Apple are not the same businesses. Apple, yes, has a wonderful cash balance, but Google is a monopoly. 
So that's different fundamentally to think about the durability of those earnings, right? Consumer discretionary of $1,000 phones is not the same thing as 98% of search. So I think it's really important for people to be fundamental investors and think about what is defensive and protected about their businesses. They're not all the same. All right. Our next guest says if he were the chairman, he would hike rates even more than 75 basis points tomorrow. Mike Schumacher is a head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Okay, so you're even going beyond 100, Michael. Why? How much? Well, but you look at it and say the Fed knows what the destination is. So it's got the funds rate now, the upper bound is 2.5%. Very likely it's the 4% plus this year. Why not just rip off the band aid? Let's get there in one day. But of course, the Fed won't do that. The Fed's very likely to go 75 tomorrow. Let's, let's play the game. Let's play this out, Michael. Let's say the Fed, we're listening right now. They, they of course they are. Show I mean, if they're listening. I know Jerome Powell's <laughs> a fan are. of Fast Money. Um, and they did that. What would, the, what would the immediate ripple effects be in the market? I mean, it would be much more than just sort of the, the, the typical sort of correlations that you see because of the magnitude of such a hike. I think the only way the Fed or any other central bank could pull off something like that, Melissa, is if it really was able to get the market to believe with confidence it was truly front-loading, it would do a huge move and then stop or stop pretty soon. The big fear in the market would be, oh my goodness, they've done a record-sized move, what's going to happen next month or the month after that, we better get out of the way. So it would require incredibly good communication and confidence or the result, carnage, and nobody wants that. Michael, it's Tim. Uh, in fact, you, you're kind of playing the role of your Formula One namesake um, in terms of how fast you want to race forward here. And when Volcker did this, we keep talking about Volcker, but when Volcker did this, debt to, to GDP levels in this country were at generational lows. Um, they've never been higher. They've gone up 50 percent. Isn't this a dangerous time? And, I, you know, I, I hear you also saying part of this is be extreme and then have a chance to, to pause and wait. Um, but this whole concept of breaking things to me uh, is the credit market and, and markets that I, I think, again, people that have been uh, basically weaned on zero percent. I'm not sure how this is going to go. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think when you consider the last 10 plus years, we've had incredibly easy monetary policy for most of that time, super stimulative fiscal policy in a lot of cases, especially the U.S. So doing a very quick U-turn, I suspect it's going to be pretty rocky. It's been rocky already. And to think that it would somehow go smoothly from here is probably a big leap. You make a great point on credit. As far as U.S. debt to GDP, yes, that's very high, but interest rates are super low. So in terms of interest payments from the Treasury, relative to GDP, they're far below where they stood back in the 90s. So that low, low yield on treasuries for a long time, it's been helping out the government. Hey, Michael, Jeff Mills here. So, you know, obviously you think they should go faster, but you also say they probably won't. So it's going to be this slower, more drawn out hiking cycle. In that environment, where do you think investors want to be looking for some relative safety here as we move through the end of the year? Yeah, relative safety, I would look at the front end of the U.S. Treasury curve. You've got the two-year Treasury yielding just about 4%. It's gone up enormously, as you all have mentioned. And you look at that and say, well, okay, it's a pretty good yield in nominal terms. It yields a fair, decent number, actually, relative to inflation. If you think about the real yield, which a lot of people in the bond market focus on, it's probably not a bad place to hide out. Take a short-duration position, sit there for a few months, see what the Federal Reserve does, and then react. All right. Michael, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Michael Schumacher, 150. Imagine a world in which the Fed went 150 and then said, you know what? After that, we're going to stop. I don't think that's ever going to happen, but that's an interesting 
thing to think about because that's ultimately where we will end up. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, you know, we've been all doing this long enough. You, none of us were doing this when Volcker was around. And, and again, I think Tim points out a really good point, that debt to GDP. It's just a different ball game right now. You know, I, listen, I, I've heard this from a lot of very smart people, much smarter than, than me. Um, you know, the Fed already made their policy mistake. And, and then, you know, by, by waiting so long, by just kind of not acknowledging some of these inflationary pressures. And then when you just see whatever they do tomorrow, if it's stopped at 75 and they remain hawkish, they're likely to make another policy mistake again. And, you know, the idea of like threading the needle and I see you squinting here. I mean, the point is, is like we are now destined for a recessionary environment. And so, again, this goes back to the stock market because that's what we're here to do. I'm not an economist, but stock markets, don't, the stock market and, and maybe it's those 15 stocks don't reflect that. They just don't. And I can just recall every time that we've had a recession over the last you know 20 years or so, the S&P sold off. 35% peak to trough in 2020. It sold off 50% um, from the highs in 07 to lows in 09. And it sold off 50% at least from the highs in 2000 to the lows in 02. So down 20% is where we are right now. Down 25% at the lows in June just does not encapsulate all the things that need to happen for this only to be a soft landing. And here, here's your silver lining too, is, is that back in 1983, all the debt was in the private sector. It's all been monetized and we put it all in the public sector. That's good and bad. I mean, the good news is that Central banks are still, again, it's March Madness for central banks this week. Every central bank in the world that matters um, is out there doing what they need to do. And in unison, it's something that I think uh, is, is probably going to at least be something that we can deal with. I, I just, you know, I look at where equities are relative to their history. And this is a, a point that I just think investors have to think about. And I think you can be patient here. This market has been all about FOMO for the last two years. We've had yeah. such extreme central bank intervention that a lot of people have been left on the sideboard. We're going to talk about SPAC tonight. It's going to be a great segment. Uh, and it's going to be the ultimate FOMO, uh, I, I think. Investors don't need to do anything here. I think patience right now for this market because you don't get through an inflation-led recession in, in nine months or 12 months. And this type of bear market, unfortunately, I think is a little bit short. The other, I mean, another dynamic to consider is once upon a time, the bull case for the markets going higher, even in a rising rate environment, was that the 10-year yield is still historically low. At what point do we say, you know what, Julie, the 10-year yield, I mean, if we believe that the cap on the 10-year yield stands at around 3.5% now or somewhere abouts, that's not, a, I mean, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, on historical terms, 35 is really actually not that much. Um, you know, going back much further, it's just we've gotten so comfortable and rates have been so low for so long. It's hard to think of any time period where we've had such an extended period of liquidity as this. So I, I think it's going to take time. And I, I think, frankly, we don't know. We just don't know how it's going to turn out. And I think it's OK to say we don't know. And I think that's why if you're trying to position yourself, you want to find businesses that have been in very uncertain market situations. You want businesses that have lots of variable costs so that it's easy for them to adapt to a changing economy. I don't want anything that's capital intensive right now. I don't want I want balance sheets that are pristine and that are actually going to benefit from raising rates, frankly. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's it's a time to I agree. It's a time for patience and it's a time to be a little bit more contrite because I just don't think we know with the level of variability out there. Coming up, Mr. Diamond goes to Washington. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Diamond and other big bank chiefs are heading to Capitol Hill to weigh in on the economy. Why they say we should brace for economic storm clouds. The details ahead. Plus, Nike gets kicked. Shares dropping after analysts move uh, this retailer to the sidelines. We'll dig into what had them so bearish on this name. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two.
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Nike falling nearly 4.5% after a downgrade from Barclays. A firm worried about excess inventory, demand challenges in China, and currency headwinds in Europe. Barclays also citing an increased risk to Nike's wholesale inventory in the new year following a promo-driven holiday shopping season where U.S. consumers will come under increasing wallet pressure. Nike is set to report earnings next week. Shareholder Tim. What do you think of this? Well, and the thing about Nike's earnings, they always seem to, because they always are a little bit off cycle. They always give us some insight, and they have for the last two years, especially during COVID, coming into it, coming out of it. And and I think some of the China dynamics are important. I think the wholesale dynamics as well. I mean, the inventory dynamics that we've heard, the most sophisticated retailers in the world, and Nike shares both sides, both of their direct to the consumer, but also um, they are feeding in some major, major outlets. So the China dynamic, I think, is well flagged. Look, I I respect the ability, you know, being cautious here. I'm just not sure down, you know, from one down to 105, um, you haven't priced in a forward multiple. Our same conversation. You know, where are you on Nike relative to where it's been over the last four or five years? You've had a forward multiple of 35. It's a forward multiple of, of 27 right now. So I think you've priced in a lot of pain. I've endured some of that, but I stay long. I, and I just think uh, at this point, this is best of breed. And, and I think that they priced in a lot of pain. I mean, I guess it depends on, on your view of how much of a premium should a trade to a market that has not adjusted to a new reality, Julie, which is a conversation that we just had before that if evaluations have to come down overall, then what is the premium? And is the premium where well, Nike is trading out versus the S&P 500? Has that priced in the pain? Because analysts says, you know, there's going to be weakness in China. And granted, North America will offset that. There will be strength in DTC, but wholesale will offset that. So there's a lot of push and pulls here in this quarter that's going to come. Yeah, I think that's the positive thing of Nike is you get a good sense for the economy and able to really read through what is concerning to me is just the level of inventory that we're seeing in the wholesale channel. We have seen already specialty and frontline retail take down all of their numbers because they have too much inventory. This is gonna kind of continue through the wholesale channel, which you know I would argue is a less, a less quality channel than what they're trying to do in their direct to consumer business. But I think, look, bottom line, there continues to just be too much inventory and a lot of markdown risk. And that's a critical component of their growth strategy going forward is being able to expand their margins and move profits higher. They, they're talking about, you know, mid to high single digits revenue growth, even at 27 times multiple, that's pretty low revenue growth. So it's dependent on earnings growth. And I just think that's going to be hard 
with higher costs and markdown risk in the near term. So if you're a believer that there's a wholesale risk, let's extrapolate that, Jeff Mills. <coughs> what other companies out there would be exposed to that? I mean, I, I think of a company like a PVH, for instance, where its brands are sold through other channels. Um, let's, let's trade this through, Jeff. Oh, I, I think that there are a lot of companies exposed to that right now, and I think that, that that's part of the issue. And, you know, more specifically to the biggest risk, which I think is the consumer, you know, the, the end sale point. You know, I think to me that's the biggest risk right now. And I've been talking about the risk to discretionary spending, and that's why every time we talk about retail, I talk about less discretionary names, like a, an AutoZone, for example. You know, you have to pick your car or fix your car. Dollar General, you know, more staples there, so the demand is certainly less variable. So I can certainly appreciate wanting to stay away from a name like this in the short term. I think not to bring everything back to the Fed, but you know, they need to induce more weakness in the labor market. Right now, that's been sort of the saving grace of all of this in retail. Demand's held up fairly well, but I just think wage growth is kind of far above what they're going to be comfortable with, and they're not going to reverse course until they see that cool sum, and that's going to have an impact on the end demand, which I think is ultimately mm -hmm. the biggest problem for a lot of these companies. The only thing I will say that is positive, um, if you have a longer-term outlook, I, you know, I think Nike, as Tim said, is best in breed. You know, what they're doing in terms of their long-term growth story, their margins, the DTC sales increasing as a percentage of total is helping. Um, so I think that there's something there, and they're close to support around that $100 level. Uh, it showed some resilience there in July, so I would watch that. Um, but near term, I can certainly understand uh, the downgrade by Barclays. Yeah. Um, the stock may hold that support. Um, the stock's down 10%. Okay, so if the, the results and the guidance aren't as bad as people think relative to what the stock just did, the stock's going to pop, but then it's going to break that support because these are not just kind of one quarter sort of things. And to me, I just think you have a really good shot. Back to what Julie said in that prior segment, being patient, you will be able to buy Nike with a nine handle get on away it, from right? I, I'm just telling you. And, and, and the dollar. We've also, let's, yeah. let's, let's, you're going to hear about 100 basis points of, of margin degradation from the dollar. The good news is, as Dan pointed out, dollars rallied 18% in a year. I don't think it's going to do the same thing next year. And I think ultimately that is right. a tailwind. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Morning in Washington. Jamie Dimon set to tell Congress of economic storm clouds that could be brewing. The tough times he sees ahead. Plus, a spectacular collapse. The once red-hot SPAC market coming to a sputtering halt as the free money flood dries up. A look at the survivors of this pandemic investing fad coming up. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Fast Money. As if a decision on interest rates weren't enough, tomorrow in Washington, the CEOs of the nation's biggest banks will be on, the, on Capitol Hill in front of the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, Citi's Jane Frazier, Bank of America's Brian Moynihan, Wells Fargo's Charlie Scharf, all there to talk about the economy, their hiring practices, and much more. Here to tell us what they are expected to say, CNBC's Leslie Pickard. Les. 
Hey, Mel. Yeah, the title of the hearing is, quote, Holding Megabanks Accountable Oversight of America's Largest Consumer-Facing Banks. The Financial Services Committee uh, majority staff say they're looking for the CEOs to address a variety of issues, including consumer protection, compliance, enforcement actions, diversity and inclusion, and emerging technologies in the banking system. In their prepared testimonies disclosed today, the CEOs largely addressed these topics, many of them touting the role they played during the pandemic, processing PPP loans, waiving or lowering overdraft fees, and raising the minimum wages of their employees. They addressed what they're doing to promote diversity and sustainability within their organizations and the controls they have in place from a cybersecurity standpoint and a privacy standpoint. Now, while the hearings were called with a focus on consumer-oriented products, sources close to the CEOs and lawmakers expect the line of questioning will actually wade into other areas as well, ESG, environmental social governance, and the polarization of those three letters is expected to be topical tomorrow, as will the regulatory environment and the overall health of the economy, how consumers and businesses are faring in the face of inflation. The hearings will be hybrid format and kick off tomorrow in the House before another one with a pretty similar topic in the Senate on Thursday. Mel? They're going to deliver prepared remarks, Leslie. Do we have an idea of what's in those remarks? Yeah. Um, So all of the remarks have been posted on the House Financial Services Committee website. I've read through all of them at this point in time. They all basically address those key points Mm -hmm. that the House was looking to for them to hit on kind of their role within the economy, their role within, uh, you know, making sure that their employees are paid well, there's diversity in their workforce, what they're doing with regard to sustainability. Interestingly, the House Financial Services Committee did address topics related to abortion and some of the bank's policies to pay for travel for their employees, but that didn't make it into any of the remarks that I saw with regard to the policy specifically related to abortion, but other social issues were largely addressed as it pertained to their workforce. Mm -hmm. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Mm -hmm. I think what the hearings are called is sort of key to understanding what the gist of this is, holding mega banks accountable. Uh, it sounds like they have a target on their backs. Tim. Yeah, I don't, I don't even want to touch uh, abortion on this one. So I'll, I'll just say when I look at banks and I look at what they might be there to talk about that I would want to listen to, I listen to Jamie Dimon, once again, the weatherman, and using the metaphorical storm clouds uh, dynamic. And, and he's pointing out a couple of things. He's pointing out some of the health, uh, the consumer balance sheet, the, the, the dynamics that are quite healthy, uh, a robust labor market, all the things that we talk about on this show, and then also talking about the dynamics that he sees on the horizon. It's very interesting. Banks have actually outperformed the market. And look, we do this all the time. You can pick different places in the road off of essentially their, their greatest period of underperformance going into that, that, that period where the S&P actually rallied in the summer. Banks really underperformed uh, since that point, And as rates have shot higher, banks have outperformed the S&P by about 12 percent. If you look at them year over year, they're, they're pretty much in line with the S&P. They've underperformed by two or three hundred basis points. Banks have I think still never been healthier. Um, bank loans are a place you start to worry about what's going on. Credit hasn't really happened yet. So uh, we always, we, you know, Dan talks about this all the time. To what extent are we pricing in credit dynamics that we just have? Right. And yet capital requirements are higher never now. Higher. And they right. say that that's a risk to them. Right. I mean, J.P. Morgan, they had to suspend their buyback in July because yeah. of higher capital requirements. That is going to come up to be sure. 
It is interesting, and, and Jamie Dimon's prepared remarks actually specifically spoke to that. Um, you know, it, it is interesting how poorly J.P. Morgan acts relative to Bank America and Wells Fargo off of its lows. Wells acts really well, up about 20 percent. Um, Bank America up about 15 percent. And then obviously, you know, the investment banks, Morgan Stanley and Goldman, despite the fact that we know a lot of the activity that they traffic in, they are not the mega banks, um, are not doing particularly well right now. They act really well off of the lows. So there is some, to Tim's point, some decent relative strength other than J.P. Morgan. Is there another shoe to drop, Julie, for the banks in terms of credit deterioration and, and, you know, loans that aren't paid back, et cetera? Or have they just they they made loans in a smarter fashion this time around? And so the banks are, are strong. Uh, I think that's a question of stay tuned to find out. Right. It's hard to know <laughs> the quality of the loan book. But we do know that in a rising rate environment, that's going to stress their borrowers, uh, be it on the consumer side, but also commercial loans. Um, all of their private loans. So I think there's for sure going to be risk to that. And you saw them making initial contributions to prepare themselves for that and for, for potential loan losses. But, you know, the level of increases on variable rates, is it's going to be substantial. And so, you know, I think longer term, the good news is, is that they're much better capitalized. So I don't think we're going to hopefully have anything resembling a financial crisis. But I still think that they are liable to see some regulatory challenges because just the tone of regulators and those on Capitol Hill is not very positive towards them. All right. Coming up, talk about a SPAC down. The once red hot SPAC market seeing a major cool down. So what's in store for the space? We'll break that down next. Plus, home builder earnings on deck. Some big names reporting results. So is this group worth a trade or will it be the wrench in your portfolio? Mm. The details straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. The SPAC king has been stripped of his throne. Jamath Palihapitiya winding down two of his blank check firms after failing to find merger targets. There are currently over 670 outstanding SPACs in the market, and almost 560 are sitting, waiting, maybe wishing for a deal. So now that the SPAC bubble has popped, will this backdoor way uh, to list go away, or will companies still try to SPAC their ways into the public markets? Let's ask Julian Klimoku. Klimochko, CEO of Accelerate Financial Technologies. He manages the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, an ETF that tracks SPACs and mergers. Julian, good to see you. Sorry for butchering your last name. It's a a tricky one. Um, No excuses. Uh, In terms of of SPACs, I mean, the heyday, I would assume most people think it's, it's over. The heyday is gone. So maybe this is actually the best ending for investors to have their money returned at 10 bucks a share as opposed to finding a deal, jamming it through, and then losing money on the other end. Yeah, you really nailed it. Like, we're in a tough market right now with the S&P 500 down 20% year-to-date, bonds down double digits, so investors really taking it on the chin. And SPACs get a lot of negative attention in the media, but if you look at that uh, return profile that they can produce for investors, and just by way of that redemption privilege, it's really saved investors this year. Now, if we rewind... 18 to 24 months back, we had this massive boom in issuance, seemingly half a dozen SPAC IPOs per day, raising billions and billions of dollars. And the fact is that we had way too much issuance. And now there's a bit of a hangover uh, combined with tough markets, tough economy. And many of these SPACs searching for deals, having trouble getting it over the finish line and ending up having to liquidate. But if you compare that to the DSPAC performance, 
or those SPACs that complete their deals and then fall from $10 to $5 or lower, perhaps liquidating is the best result for investors. So, Julian, you do say that there are some opportunities, as I would think that you would say, uh, being a guy who tracks SPACs for a living in part and, and runs an ETF. Um, but the examples that you give are companies that have been de And so these are completed transactions. And so I'm wondering how much do you think of it is the ability, I mean, they went, they found a deal already. So they found a deal when things were much better than they are today. So are there opportunities that you see today in this market environment for a transaction to be done and for investors to make money? Yes, certainly, as you saw, there are over 550 SPACs looking for a deal, and they have the cash to complete a deal. The problem is getting a private company or a target to dance the dance with them and go public in a very tough market. So if we can see that, and and the types of deals that we're seeing work well in the current market environment are not those hyper-growth, a science experiment type early VC opportunities, but what's working in this market is consistent, uh, you know, classic businesses that are profitable, growing, and just more so mature than some of the earlier stage businesses or concepts that we saw going earlier. So if you're uh, a SPAC, that has the ability to complete a deal, you have deal flow and can find a dance partner that is willing to go public in the current market environment at a good valuation for investors, then that can add a lot of value. And I think that's the formula in the current market environment to get a successful deal completed and not liquidate. I was curious um, what you think is the best use of a, of a SPAC, because it, it really feels like it's hard to understand why they really have a major purpose right now. I mean, I basically tried to get a SPAC going for my toddler just to see if I could get him into preschool to you know, differentiate him. But I'm, I'm really curious why this vehicle makes sense um, to you long term. That'd be a pretty expensive preschool. But I digress. Um, so you can think of a SPAC as, say, like a, a one-stock private equity fund or a one-stock venture capital fund. Um, where some entrepreneurs or, or uh, an alternative asset management firm wants to put together a pool of capital and bring a new opportunity to the market. So it's just a different way of acquiring company, bringing it public, as opposed to a direct listing or an IPO. The SPAC structure does have certain advantages over those uh, alternatives for a company to go public. and. There's different purposes for a SPAC uh, if we look at uh, the supply and demand equation for the uh, supply side, obviously, can be lucrative if a sponsor does it correctly. However, if they don't, then they end up losing uh, a lot of money if they can't get a deal done. And then on the demand side, look, uh, the fact is, over the past 20 years, we saw a massive decline in public market listings. But what the SPAC did, that vehicle in and of itself, it actually reversed the decline, and we have seen a like a tremendous amount of new companies go public via the blank check. And ultimately, my thinking is that the more the better, whether you're a long investor or a short investor, um, the more supply, the more choice for investors, in my mm -hmm. opinion. It's just, it's good all around. Julian, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
Julian Klimochko, I did it again. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting idea, Julie. I was thinking of NFTing my, my toddler's first artwork to pay for preschool, which is very expensive, yeah. by the way. Uh, Jeff Mills, I don't know if you want to take in the, in the SPAC-specific direction or if this is just a sign of the times of the market that we are in at this point. Yeah, and that, that was sort of my question. I haven't done the analysis, but I wonder what the, the D-SPAC or post-merger performance is over a longer-term basis versus just a traditional IPO and whether they're kind of inherently more risky. But you know, it's a risk-off thing right now. It's an investor preference thing. I just looked at the performance of kind of broad SPACs down about 60% versus ARC, for example, down 55%. And those two things are very correlated, certainly much more to themselves than the broad market. So I think that's, that's a big part of it. And you know, we wrote a piece in mid-2021 basically saying, look, the SPAC isn't going anywhere, but the run rate, uh, it was just ridiculous and unsustainable. And the biggest risk to investors was that these these sponsors were going to go out, buy companies that were garbage, and then they were going to be stuck with those. So again, just to underscore the point, I think some of these liquidations, it's the responsible thing for the sponsor to be doing. Uh, and it's probably the best outcome for a lot of these investors. So uh, down 80% on the DSPAC index is em- emblematic of high multiple tech. I, I just wow. think there's a supply and a demand for capital out there. And, and there, there are good companies that need capital. I, I think there's too much hype on either side of this. This is an environment where good deals will come forward. And actually weeding out a bunch of these structures, not a bad idea. You know, and that's a great point. Over the summer, I think it was in August, a company, SeatGeek, that I used their product. And it, they had agreed to do, uh, do a SPAC, $1.35 billion. They're going to come to market. And they called it off because of market conditions. Then they did a Series D at almost the same valuation, raising $230 million. So there are plenty of good companies that were going to use the vehicle to go public, but market conditions made it really tough. And the ability for them to raise in the private markets and actually have the capital, that's why they were going public, to get capital to do things. I think that's a good example. So things are kind of working. And the fact that these sponsors are taking the hit, giving the money back to investors makes sense, too. And I just want to quickly disclose, I sit on the board of a a SPAC that's looking for a deal. So, I mean, you know, it's it's an environment where there are good companies companies out there. There's a lot of deals, but there's a lot of these things that won't get done. So I just want to point that out. Coming up, we're drilling into some home builder options ahead of earnings this week. So how should you play the space? More on that next. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we're celebrating our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's the founder of Zoe Financial. I came to the United States from Colombia when I was 12 years old. My heritage had a huge impact in my success, and you don't have to look that far than the company that I started, Zoe Financial. My parents were looking to hire a financial advisor. The concept of hiring someone and entrusting them with, uh, with your money outside of the family is a big deal. So I interviewed a number of advisors and kind of gave me this idea of like, well, maybe there's millions of other families that have a tough time finding someone that they could trust with their money. So it had a huge impact in my career. Do not miss CNBC's Delivering Alpha returning in person on September 28th. Economic leaders, policymakers, and the world's best investors sharing insight on risk, opportunity, and navigating the new market dynamic. And I will be moderating a panel, The Game of Risk, Scan the QR code on your screen to register. Now time for options action. Two rate-sensitive names falling ahead of tomorrow's Fed decision. KB Home and Lennar both set to report earnings tomorrow before the bell. Option traders are betting those results could spell trouble for the sector. Mike Coe's got the trade. Mike. Yeah, XHB traded two times the average daily put volume. That the result of the November 49 puts. We saw a little over 3,000 of those trade for just under 90 cents. That continuing on the bearish theme after we saw 23,000 November put spreads trade in XHB. 
What's really going on here, as rates have gone higher, so has the interest in puts on XHB, which have more than quintupled since late March. Wow. Thank you for that, Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, jackpot trading. Mm. Casino stocks up big since the June low, so does the group still have lady luck by their side? The traders are placing their bets when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Lady Luck hitting the casino stocks lately. The group's seeing some nice gains since the market uh, June lows. So, um, Jeff Mills, you've been watching this space? Yeah, I have. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think more or less I've been looking at the charts just to see kind of what looks better than others. And, and for me, I just think when... Uh, you know, it broke through that $68, $69 level. It's certainly testing the downtrend, but I'd wait on it just a little bit here just because I think the outcome there is a little bit more binary. It's sort of a speculative bet on China reopening that's so unpredictable. So we'll see what happens there. The outcome could certainly be outsized, but it could be in one direction <laughs> or another. You know, I prefer a name like MGM, for example, 85% U.S. revenue exposure, uh, some leverage to what's going on in China, but it's not totally dependent on it. So uh, I I'd be more focused on a name like MGM right here. Speaking of unpredictable, General, I have to ask you, you you've gone from a, a, an office that looked like a desert island. Is that a plant behind you on your table? I mean, cut flowers. I mean, is it, cut, is it an arrangement? You know, cut I, I, tried my, I, try, I, I, I tried my best to spruce things up a little bit over here, but I got, I got to admit, that plant I actually stole from the lobby right outside my office here, so it's not mine, but uh, wow. it is here for the show. Good to know you can steal a plant these days. And then in, in the picture frame, one of your pictures Maybe does it say like is a inspiration, word. inspiration, <laughs> like endurance or steal a flower, steal a flower. Like <laughs> no, I'm not that sentimental. All right. Okay. <laughs> we had to comment on your. I mean, it's a do, fast do we need, improvement. Do we need a casino straight anymore? Is that is all we need? I tried. I, no. I gave yeah. it an effort. We, we just want to comment at Jeff's office. Up next, final trades. <laughs> trade time. I guess everybody's redecorated their offices, Julie. No taxidermy for you. Final trade. Uh, Clearwater Analytics. It's mission critical software at a reasonable price. I'll take it. Jeff Mills. TLT, I still think that you want to think about extending that maturity on your fixed income portfolios. Take advantage of those higher rates because I think they're probably close to a peak here. Tim. If you want to show, uh, throw the general's flowers in the garbage, go with waste management because I think in a recession, this is a very defensive cash flow creative company. Dumpsters. I think it's flowers. I'm kidding. I love the. I'm sorry, Jeff. Yeah, Target's breaking down on that inventory level. I think this thing has another 20 points to the downside. Target. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at five for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.